Hi there and welcome to another episode of Leading. Two more bosses today sharing their take on taking the top job. Some of the CEOs are featured in this series from business, charity, the arts and beyond also appear in my book, The Nine Types of Leader, which is available to order. Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit lockdowninternational.com slash gb slash insight. So to today's episode. Ewan Venters is chief executive of Fortnum & Mason, the Queen's grocer, which is famous for its luxury hampers, teas and preserves. He's been in charge since 2012 and he's boosted online delivery and opened new stores as far afield as Hong Kong, but the COVID-19 pandemic has dealt trading a severe blow. Ewan's joined by Rita Clifton. She's a branding expert, speaker, and author. She was vice chairman and strategy director at the advertising group Saatchi & Saatchi, and for many years led Interbrand, the global brand consultancy, before co-founding her own venture, Brandcap. Her leadership book, Love Your Imposter, demonstrates how people can take on their imposter self and use it to come out stronger. It's a good chat, especially on putting together the building blocks for a successful leadership career. I began by asking Ewan what it was like to be a leader in the retail world just now. Well, leading in retail is extremely interesting. Between lockdown one and lockdown two, we thought we were starting to make some really good progress at rebuilding consumer confidence and creating a a safe environment for people to come and shop in the physical space, both retail and hospitality. And then suddenly, and we were doing quite well. And then suddenly the the bubble burst when lockdown two came along. And although we've retained our retail food business open in in our Piccadilly store in central London, trades now minus 80% to last year. So we're only retaining 20% of last year's numbers. And although online is extraordinarily strong, that will only be maintained for a very short period of time because um, by the time we get into late November, early December, the capacity in the distribution network and the delivery drivers for the last mile delivery will essentially evaporate because there just isn't enough overall capacity in the British network to allow all of the business that might have typically been done in store to translate into online. So I think it's a a difficult period, but potentially to get even more difficult unless there is a unlock and a material message to consumers that it's safe to go out and shop again on the high street. And hence all those warnings about order early for Christmas and and so on, because it's no use getting hampers delivered in mid-January. Not really, not very helpful, (laughs) as has the trend been for the last few years where Consumers tend to order later and later and later because they feel confident that the distribution network can support late orders. That simply will not be the case in Fortnum's environment and indeed almost in any other retail environment across the UK. So what are the decisions you have to make at the moment? Because I I guess there are companies that are less well-resourced than yours and the boss has to kind of decide about do I protect the organization, the company for the future, or do I strive to protect the jobs and the livelihoods of all these people who, who've worked with me for many years? Well, we're privately owned, Fortnum's is privately owned. And in fact, we went into the lockdown, the original lockdown back in March in a very strong uh, position with a good balance sheet, good cash position. And in fact, during this entire pandemic, we've never taken a penny of support, furlough support from the government because 
we've been able to pay our people fully during this pandemic. And I believed passionately that the furlough scheme that was announced was really the spirit of the furlough scheme was to help companies who otherwise simply wouldn't survive. Now, I think we all know that that's not necessarily how it's been adopted. And we've seen a record number of companies start to consider handing back payments. Fortunately, we weren't in that position. We had a very strong policy and we've stood by it. Suffice to say, though, it is a fragile line because, you know, the next X number of days to Christmas Eve will set the tone of the Fortnum's retail business for 2021. So a good Christmas, in other words, will give us some coverage to make longer term decisions, even if next year is a bumpy year, whereas a very bad Christmas trading period will force our hand to make some perhaps more structural changes to the way the organization is run. And, uh, you know, clearly, I would rather it was the former, not the latter. And if strong companies privately held, invested in for the long term, having to make these tough decisions as 2021 hoves interview, then I can only imagine what's happening elsewhere in the high street and retail and so on. Completely. I mean, I predict that a third of retail brands in the UK, I think, will disappear inside the first quarter of next year. Well, just totally coming off the high street or, or literally shutting up shop? I think shutting up shop. Um, because even those who have got a relatively strong online business, the economics of the online growth versus the structural cost base of physical stores will eliminate them. And I think that we're not just talking about a few people. You know, there were, at the beginning of the original lockdown, I was, uh, in fact, quite openly critical about certain brands, you know, were saying they're struggling desperately. But actually, they were struggling for years before. And it, it almost made me rather cross to think that there was government support available for certain companies who almost shouldn't be existing anyway. But that we've moved beyond that now. You know, we're moving into a position where there are some really solid, great brands, great businesses in retail and in hospitality that are, were well run, but now just fall victim to extraordinary circumstances. And no furlough extension, you know, I've been saying this to government, no furlough extension is going to help those businesses. Rita, I'll come to you. What do you make of the times we're living through and the, the demands it places on people in positions of leadership? Well, goodness me. I mean, that was an incredibly sobering piece from you and there. I mean, I was going to say that one of my biggest leadership sort of challenging moments was with the dot-com dot-bomb era where our business collapsed by 40%. I mean, you and talking about minus 80%, that does put some of those struggles into, into perspective. In fact, I was going to say to you, and I was trying to do my bit for supporting Fortnum's, but actually I'm <laughs> thinking I'm adding pressure to the system by no, trying no, no. to get some of my gifts to we'll, we'll take your order, Rita. Don't worry. Take, we'll take your order. <laughs> I'm very, very glad to hear that. But, but I, you know, clearly we have never seen anything like this. I mean, even just after the dot bomb of the early noughties and then the appalling circumstances around 9-11. I mean, we are just seeing such a widespread, widespread struggle and panic for business, let alone for the human condition. And again, I don't think any of us in leadership positions have ever seen anything like it nor had to deal with it. I mean, you know, one of the key words I always used to use to describe being a CEO is relentless. 
well, you know, I, I don't even think we quite understood uh, what that word meant until uh, we've either tried to lead through these times or indeed help other people leading through these times. I mean, on the boards I sit on, I'm a non-executive director of lots of different types of uh, organisations. And I think we've all tried to make something positive at least come out of the last nine months, which is we've learned how to work more quickly or more collaboratively or whatever it is. But I don't know about anyone else. I'm seeing real fatigue and fear in people's eyes where you might be saying, look, we can move fast and do this and everything else. However, if people don't have the personal resources, let alone the financial and, and more practical resources, to make the changes on the scale and speed that we need, well, you know, that's a very, very dark hole. So I don't want to look down that dark hole. And clearly a big role of us all as leaders is to try and make sure we're painting a picture of what's possible in the future and at least find a roadmap through there. But, you know, a third of, a third of retail brands are disappearing, then it's difficult not to feel really miserable about that and to really think, you know, all of us need to think, how on earth are we going to employ more and more people when actually some of these stresses in our businesses mean that we've got to employ fewer and fewer? How can we start new enterprises and support people to, uh, to create different jobs in the future? So anyway, some of these things, just small challenges in the sort of day-to-day -day of trying to keep all of our um, ships at sail. Do you think there's a tension because we're in this, and you touch on this a little in, in uh, your book, Love Your Imposter, about the need for authenticity and almost a gentler kind of leadership. But actually, in the teeth of the crisis, when there are these tough decisions to make, there has to be a ruthlessness about it, doesn't there? Well, I don't like the word ruthlessness because I think that that starts speaking to you know the chewing concrete blocks of breakfast image of business. And I don't think that's helpful for any of us. I mean, business, if we're not careful, can be painted into this Hollywood-type villain picture and alienation of people paying themselves too much talking in jargon and not looking like other people as well. I think that, um, ironically, we can look to some, not only some great, business examples of you know business leaders who are leading brilliantly through this times but actually just political leadership where Jacinta Ardern has demonstrated you can be strong and kind these are not mutually exclusive words and you say gentle leader I mean I think we need tough love for all of our people and the toughness is it's a very very tough world and we're going to have to make some very difficult decisions but we are going to do that in a way that is generous and kind, because frankly, if we're not careful, um, not only if we're not kind to our people, will they not be able to withstand some of the pressures that we're putting them under, but also our businesses will not have the kind of reputation in the outside world that we need, you know, for broader civic and government support. So I think we need to be authentic as the, I hope, good people, good human beings that we are with pets and pulses and families and, and everything else and show that actually we care about, about the things that our fellow human beings care about and we're trying to actually work through and make things better. Ewan, can I talk about a slightly brighter times because you talk about the 2021 plan and of course this won't be yours because you're you're leaving Fortnum's you know pretty soon for the the heady world of art but I, I guess it's it must be an incredible 
time to be leaving, but you can take some solace in the fact that this business must be in better shape because of what you've done with it, you know, modernization and, and expansion. I think for many years before you arrived in 2012, Fortnum's didn't even make a profit, I read, which is, is astonishing to think about where the business got to. Well, absolutely. In the seven years before 2012, it had lost the best part of, I think, £30 million. So no, it was a, it was a loss-making brand. It was a brand that was essentially business and a brand that was mostly about Piccadilly with a bit of online and a, a little bit of presence internationally. And of course, the business today is, you know, three times bigger. It's 20, was until the COVID year, 26 times more profitable. It's trading successfully in Hong Kong and a digital business that to, that, that pre-COVID was 20% of sales. Of course, one of the exciting things, and to be optimistic also about the future, is that we, we believe in this financial year ahead that digital sales will represent nearly 50% of group sales. We've accelerated against our original 2030 business plan, and I'm a big believer in planning sort of in decades, I mean, not budgeting in decade terms, but planning in terms of big aspirational goals. And we will this year turn over in online what we thought we would do by 2025. Wow. And what was digital like in 2012 out of interest? Was representing 9% of sales. So pretty good, actually. Better than I thought. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, But then you see the DNA of Fortnum's has been a business that delivered out in the world, you know, from the earliest concept of the hamper invented in 1730, it was always about shipping out into the world for the great explorers and the royalty that traveled the world that Fortnum's would travel with them. And and therefore, the inherent DNA of the business was that we would always be seeking to do that. And of course, therefore, when the company in 1998 first transacted online, it was a very early adopter. So it was pretty robust even in 2012, but it got to a good place by 2019. And then this year and next year, we, as I said, we will have accelerated, I don't know, four to five years in 12 to 18 months, which is, which is positive and is exciting. And when you made those changes, did you have to, I mean, I'm conscious it, this is a company that goes back to 1707. It's the Queen's grocer. It's adorned with royal warrants. Very, very traditional. Do you really have to tread quite lightly when you come in with, with all these newfangled ideas? Well, the internal mantra was let's be more relevant to more people more often. And that together with a goal to reacquaint ourselves with the domestic consumer was the essence of what all of the new stuff was all about. So today, 60 plus percent of our customer base is UK domestic. That number's only gone up during the lockdown and the COVID period, of course. And it's very exciting, you know, to look at online sales and think that during the lockdown, 94% of everything that was bought online was delivered here in the United Kingdom. And you could see the product shift to cheeses and hams and meats and wines. And you knew that that wasn't a gift. That was people buying for home consumption. So, you know, with that mantra, be more relevant to more people more often to focus on the domestic consumer was almost taking the brand, if you like, back to where its origins were. 
And therefore, although you were one were modernizing and, and contemporizing is the word that really we use, and we were looking at new products and new categories and new ways of selling and new outlets and new positioning, it was all with that backdrop of how do we be more engaging to the local consumer? And for that reason, I think we achieved a really healthy balance. Rita, I know you love a good brand story, and Fortnum's clearly is one, but to touch on what you've written on leadership recently, the book seems to really ball up everyone's feelings of self-doubt when they're in leadership positions and try to make something useful out of that to really push themselves forward. Is that where it came from? Well, it is. I mean, look, frankly, I'm listening to Ewan's story and thinking, frankly, we are not worthy, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, think, I think Fortlands is just the most remarkable case study, and I'm sure and hope that you'll get all the accolades that uh, that he and the team deserve uh, for doing that. But I, I'd love to know at some point from you and about did you have moments of self doubt, and did you have moments where you thought I'm not sure if I could do this, and I. And the reason I say that is, you know, I have spoken to many people over time in business and in organizations of all kinds, and particularly when people have had moments where they need to step up or they're doing something for the first time. And what I've shared with them is actually my own feeling sometimes. I mean, I mentioned, you know, the dot bomb era when I was CEO. I mean, I remember walking around the offices and the uh, the track Nelly Furtado uh, was playing and I was all I could think of was I need to make so many of these people redundant. I mean I found it a very daunting task as well as a very difficult task from a sort of a human point of view. And what I what I noticed and what I realized after a certain time is that actually these feelings are very normal human feelings. Uh, something like 70% of people talk about having imposter syndrome or the imposter phenomenon. And actually, I think in some ways, you can use those feelings to stretch yourself. I mean, obviously, if it goes into a real mental health challenge, and it does for a minority of people, then you need to get some professional serious help. But for the vast majority of other people, these are just feelings of, oh my goodness, can I do it? This thing or person or presence on your shoulder going, actually, do you know you can't really or you don't deserve to be here? These, again, are very normal feelings, as I have discovered, both from my research and my real life experience. And absolutely, some of these feelings you can embrace. Don't bother to fight them, because actually that loses energy. You know, just go, right, I recognize you, I know why you're there, and it's going to actually help me do better, uh, think better, stretch myself, uh, etc. And actually, the other side of that is that those very human feelings, if you acknowledge them, they enable you to connect better with other people. And the way we're going to generate sustainably valuable businesses is by building sustainable relationships with our employees, our colleagues, and also, of course, for our customers. And I don't know if anyone remembers, there was a book called Marketing Warfare. It used to be a staple diet. Is that another one of yours, Rita? No, do you know, funny enough, it wasn't because I tend not to use, you know, the language of battles. And honestly, honestly, there were little things like ambushing the consumer and guerrilla marketing. And I just thought, you know, this is exactly what gives business a bad name. You know, somehow using people as targets and again, using the language of warfare. And frankly, you know, if we've learned anything in the incredibly transparent digital age is whatever you think and whatever whatever a business like on the inside gets to the outside with a scale and a speed that will take your breath away. So 
Don't pretend you're a smiley customer service organization on the outside if you're an axe murdering culture on the inside. So try to have the, you know, have the right heart and soul and build sustainable relationships which are respectful because that's what's expected now and frankly that's also what works. The word imposter has cropped up on this podcast. It is usually female CEOs that use it. And interestingly, when I've got two female CEOs on together, it comes up even more. So I'm interested to throw it back to you and in this wonderful transformation, you and where were the moments of self-doubt? No, there's never been self-doubt. Uh, <laughs> no, no. no, no. Have you that... got a lie detector? Have you got a lie detector on <laughs> no, you? No. no, can I tell you that I wake up every morning thinking I'm just starting out, huh? So there is a self-doubt for me personally in that sort of sense of I do feel as though I'm just beginning my career. And, you know, I was very lucky. I was 18 days before my 40th birthday when I was awarded the role or when I joined Fortnum's. And when I was 21, 22, I was working for a remarkable man called Tom Viner, who was the deputy chairman at Sainsbury's and John Sainsbury was chair. And I had an appraisal and I still had the piece of paper where we both agreed that a, a right ambition would be to become the CEO or managing director of a good-sized company by the time I was 40. And I achieved it 18 days before my 40th birthday. True, oh, true story. And those stories, story. people aren't meant to have those pieces of paper, but it's, it's very, very refreshing <laughs> to know that you, you admit it was there and it was a, a good Absolutely. conversation to have. So, so, yes, there is always an inner thing of me waking up in the morning and thinking, you know, I'm just kicking off here. However, when it comes to doubt about doing the right thing, no, I was. I've I've always believed in the power of the service, the power of the product, you know, the power of the storytelling, and this belief that if we had the right sensitivity, and we were thoughtful, and we were. I love the word kind. I mean, I've been talking about you know the importance of being kind. I mean, I remember going to to Wales to a, a big sort of charitable convention that I spoke at maybe five years ago now or something. And I talked about the importance of being kind in business and BBC Radio Wales ran this story saying, you know, this, this grand CEO from London had come to talk about kindness. And I was slightly ridiculed in the press about it. And yet today, I'm sorry, it's been, it's almost starting to become slightly overused, this idea that kindness is a, a positive characteristic in business. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a great, uh, a great passion of mine. But on customers, I must just tell you a funny little story because I was joined in the August 2012 and we'd had a half-decent run within a few months of press coverage about my arrival and about stuff we were doing. It was early December. I was in the warehouse in the store, the store warehouse, and a member of staff came up to me and said, Mr. Venters, have you seen the tweet? And I said, but which, <laughs> which, which tweet? I mean, I was only on Twitter about a month before. I said, which tweet are you referring to? Well, Mr. Stephen Fry has just tweeted some really nasty things about the, the store. And I went, my goodness. So I had a look on, on Twitter and sure enough, Stephen had said a few things about service that morning on the, on the telephone. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, we just had this great press coverage. And Stephen at that point had, I think, 5 million followers. Now today I think <laughs> he's got 12 or 13. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? So a minute or two later, my phone rang and it was a, nun, un, you know, a, a number I didn't recognize. And I, and I answered and the phone went, is that Mr. Ventures? And I said, yes, it's Stephen Fry here. I'm <laughs> ringing, I'm ringing to apologize. And I said, but why, Mr. Fry? Because I think we have to apologize to you. He said, no, but I'm ringing, I'm riddled with guilt. <sighs> I've said nasty things oh. about your brand on Twitter. 
And um, we got to the gist of it. The hampers were running late. They were due to go to the, the QI set and they were about to f finish filming that day and, and they were going to be late, et cetera, et cetera. All resolved. Later in the day, I'm following Stephen now on Twitter and, I, and he talks about the Canaries, Norwich City Football Club. So I send him a message saying, I didn't know you loved Norwich. I said, Delia Smith owns Norwich and she's a great mate of mine. He said, well, I'm a, I'm a director. Uh. And anyway, long story short, from that day to this day, Stephen's become a great personal friend, but a huge advocate of the brand. And give him half a, half a, half a chance. He's on Twitter or in the press or saying something rather charming about us, but purely from a customer point of view. And so I think that this sort of expression about, you know, customers, I mean, I think, I think engage with your customers, you know, talk to your customers. You know, I don't think be friends with every customer. That would be a ridiculous thing to say. But, but if you have an empathy with who your customers are and if you're passionate and care about what you're doing for them, then I think customers reward you. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but first here's Lockton's managing partner, Chris Brown, on tackling his biggest leadership challenge. My biggest leadership challenge today is keeping the business relevant in the environment that we're all working in, making sure that we're delivering to our clients in the way that clients want to be delivered to because they're in such a challenging environment with COVID and the pandemic. And within that, making sure that our associates feel that they are valued, they're invested in, that they're supported, and that they are part of a successful organisation that will really care for them and care for our clients. Rita, just to prove I got to page 194 of your book and more <laughs> and more. I'm sending over the brown envelope now. Don't worry. Yes, yeah. don't worry. I'm holding it. Yeah. I'm holding it. So there's this there's this point in the book which I think is really interesting. Um, you were given feedback. So you were leading a team. You were given feedback by a male boss who said you were doing a great job, but you needed more stature and gravitas. He said that sometimes you could come across as being a bit of a breathless girl. And as you write in the book, you sulked, you felt humiliated and pat patronised, but actually you thought he had a point. So I'm just curious because there's something about how female leaders develop themselves and portray themselves. And it feels like in that section there, there's a, there's a degree of conformity you're advocating. I wouldn't say conformity, but I absolutely confess that there have been moments in my career where if I haven't wanted to punch something or someone, I've certainly, you know, my blood pressure has burst through my head. I, not that hopefully they would have seen that. But, you know, yeah, I did feel humiliated. There is no doubt about it. But actually, when I went off and reflected, what he was saying in a rather clumsy way, I recognised I had a problem. I recognised I had a problem of living up to a senior executive role in the way that I conducted myself in meetings. And I didn't need to do the kind of Margaret Thatcher drop your voice type voice training, but I just needed to make sure that I reflected what I knew and my experience in the way that I was presenting myself and my body language and so on in meetings. So I think sometimes you can, you know, the power of mortification, if I can put it that way, when you get angry or otherwise when you make mistakes or you fail at something and you can torture yourself a bit, but all I would say is a bit like loving your imposter. I think it's about using 
some of these failures in order to learn and think, do you know, I'm not going to let that happen again. I think that just the other thing I'd say, and, you know, on the, particularly uh, when Ewan was talking a bit about rescuing, you know, service rescue and that kind of stuff and being kind. The other side of that coin, by the way, is that bullying is very expensive, let alone you know, a negative force in the world. I mean, one of the biggest risk factors, as we know, in businesses going down is having an over-domineering CEO where people are scared of giving them honest feedback or scared of telling them the truth, etc. That is not only expensive, but it also can cause the damnation in businesses too. So, you know, the whole nice guys finish last thing, I mean, A, that belongs back in 1946 when it was said, and secondly, it was made about a, a North American baseball game. So I just don't think it, it, it doesn't belong. It's well past its shelf life or sell-by date. It doesn't belong in modern businesses. And as I say, it's uh, nasty guys. That doesn't work. Which is not to say that tough love doesn't work because it does. Providing you've got the right heart and soul of giving people feedback and so on and you genuinely want to make them better or indeed make a business better, that is a positive emotion and that's also a positive drive. You and you've already mentioned Tom Viner, who I think sounds like was something of a mentor to you. And mm. I know you were on the management training scheme, and within a mm. few years, you were it will be termed the ch the deputy chairman's assistant. Uh, yeah. I'm quite curious. This role does pop up from time to time in future leaders' CV. Mm. What is it about that? I mean, is it getting close to the levers of power early and learning at the coalface, or, or something else? No, I think that's exactly what it is. It's it's a uh... You know, I didn't go to university. Well, actually, when people say, did you go to university? I say, yes, yes. I, I got a first-class honours. And they say, oh, my God, which university? And I say, well, University of Life. And, and people giggle. And, uh, and, of course, my university training was being assistant to the deputy chairman because you were in and around some pretty formidable characters who knew a thing or two about running companies. And of course, the network, you know, they were, they were around politicians and prime ministers and presidents and everybody in between kind of thing. So uh, as a relatively young man, well, very young, really, 23 to 26, I think, I spent three great years being in that environment. And if you're smart and you keep your mouth shut and you listen and learn and watch and do what you need to do really well, you learn an incredible amount. So Sainsbury's was on top of the world then. It was the number totally. one supermarket. Number one. Yeah, you bet. But there was a lot of huge amounts of empathy. You know, these people, they knew how to run tough businesses, but they had real respect for the employees, real empathy with the vendors, with the suppliers, with the producers, with the farmers. You know, it, it was an extraordinary experience in my case. And, uh, and I think that uh, there's a lot to be said for how to cultivate smart, young talent in, in that kind of environment. Rita, I'm interested in some of the skills that you've picked up along the way because we follow your CV through Saatchi's and then leading Interbrand for, for many years. And I'm particularly interested, 2013, you left Interbrand behind and you co-founded Brandcap, your own consultancy. Were there things that you didn't know, the new skills you had to learn pretty quickly when you go from running this big multinational strand to actually starting up, I imagine, in a, in a you know just a couple of you in an office? 
Yes, I mean, it was. And I would be lying, however, to say that I was running the startup because actually my business partner was running running the company and I was chairing and doing the stuff that I do as a practitioner, as a networker. So, and actually, I have to confess, I chickened out of starting a business several times before I actually did it. <laughs> I did it in the end. And so I do feel that some people are going to be entrepreneurs from the age of seven. These are the kids who are sort of selling things to their friends in the playground and they will never fit into the corporate sphere. And other people who get to a stage in life where you think, you know, I don't really want to be owned anymore. I want to do something for myself. And you are in a more comfortable position. It wasn't as though I had to put my house on the line or anything to start that business. It was a later stage and it was alongside every, you know, many other things that I was doing. But in fact, I was very interested in listening to you and talk about his, you know, the University of Life thing. And I, I was just reflecting that and thinking, actually, I was doing my University of Life stuff before I went to university and during because, you know, I had to work during holidays and evenings and weekends and, and everything else and did such a huge variety of things, whether sort of factory work or shop work or uh, office work, clubs and pubs and things like that. And I think that kind of rich experience is something that we all, we all benefit from because it helps you understand a whole variety of people when you might not, you know, live in very mixed communities. I think it's incredibly important for our children and our, and the people that, you know, the young people that we work with and help to try and help them with a huge variety of, of roles and jobs because it does make a huge difference. And, you know, the other thing I would just say, and particularly to people who are starting out in their careers, is how important it is to learn the language of finance. Because I had to learn the language, at, you know, you say 30, you said you're in 39. Funnily enough, I became CEO when I was 39. And I had to learn the language of finance in detail really very quickly. And the problem with learning a language uh, at you know, a later stage in life is that you know you speak with a slightly dodgy accent and hit a few bum words. So I think that it's incredibly important to pick up these skills and really learn some of these fundamental business skills. And again, the language of business and the language of finance, so that even if you come at issues more from a customer or a human or a creative point of view, you can express your ideas in a way that are likely to land a, in the boardroom, and B, as far as investors investors are concerned. Of course, you, it, it's interesting, Rita, you talk about these um, high-flying children selling things to their parents at a, at a very young age. And uh, <laughs> Ewan was in the bakery business at the age of 11. <laughs> ah. uh, so he, he was, he, and then he converted it into the corporate world. So really, Ewan, you know, tell us how you did it. <laughs> I want, you're very well researched. I was wondering whether that would come up. <laughs> yes, no, I, I, that is absolutely true. I did set up my own small weekend delivery bakery delivery business at the age of 11 which i uh, i think at my peak <laughs> age 15 i had about six people working for me and when i left to move to london 16 turning 17 i sold it to one of my employees so how about that that's um, remarkable oh, yeah oh so. my goodness I, I i can feel a book coming on by the way you and <laughs> really feel a book oh my coming God. on and i hope they were good scottish bakery goods like uh, something like an onion bridie no, we were concentrated on proper like morning rolls. Oh, and, fine, fine. And and tablet, Scottish tablet, which is a bit like fudge. Which actually, all these years on, about four years ago, we created the first ever Fortnum and Mason cookbook written by Tom Park Bowles, and I indulged in contributing my own tablet recipe, which is in the book to this day. 
And, uh, and then my very clever buying team um, decided that they loved it so much that they've created a product. So if you go on the shop floor or online, you can actually discover a, a Ewan Scottish tablet that you can actually buy, which is my original recipe that I was making back when I was uh, 10, 9, 10, 11 and selling as part of my bakery wow. business. So there we go. You've obviously done lots of stuff and you know worked hard at this, Ewan. Do you think there's been an element of some elements of luck along the way? Yes, of course. I mean, I think, I mean, my stock answer to the luck one is that you kind of do make your own luck, you know, by, by the people you hang out with and, and the friends and family that you associate with. So I don't believe in sort of, you know, just luck by luck nature. But uh, yeah, I'm sure in all of our cases, I'm sure with Rita and, and, and anybody who's done well in their professional careers, that there's a lot of good luck or goodwill that comes along as, as, you, as you do things and, and timing and, and the like. And, and uh, for sure, but you've got to have, you know, uh, we, the word authentic was used earlier on, I think. And, you know, things have got to be rooted in authenticity. Short success will be short lived if it, it, it's not rooted in something more real. And I really believe that consumers only repeat their uh, purchases and their habits with brands and companies who uh, come from a really authentic place. Tell me about why you're moving on. So in 2021, you'll be running Hauser & Worth, Modern Art Gallery, very international. All I can see looking at it is, to a degree, you've got a, a multi-brand retailer there again. So there are similarities with Fordham's, <laughs> but they probably don't want to be associated with that at all. I've described them in horrendous terms. But I suppose, well, I'm just interested in the thought process. Well, I've worked with Ivan and Manuela Worth, who are the founders of House and Worth. They started their business 25 plus years ago in Zurich and turned their business into a, a international leading contemporary art business. And uh, I've been working with them as a non-executive for the last couple of years. So I got to know them and their family really, really well. And they've taken their business, you know, from art into other activities. So they, 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 for example, in Bruton and Somerset, where they have a beautiful gallery, they also have a restaurant and they have a education center, a, a cottage to rent out. And most recently, they've just opened a farm shop. So they've for some time been looking through the lens of their business in a slightly broader way than perhaps a traditional gallerist might otherwise do. So we, we just connected and like-minded souls thought about how will the discerning people of the world want to spend their money and how will they look at businesses in different ways. And we're all entrepreneurs, Ivan Manuela, myself, deep down. Uh, we have a passion for what we do. I have a deep love of art personally anyway. And it was a great meeting of minds. And, and so the conversation ran a bit mostly through last year about would I consider going full time as their executive CEO, which they've never had that role before. And I don't think they ever would really. I don't think they would go out to a classic headhunter and say, look, we want to appoint a CEO. But there was, but we all connected. And, uh, and really by the turn of the year, there was a deal to be done. But then, of course, we could start to see what was happening in the world. Fortnum's, of course, has a business, as you know, in, in Hong Kong, a, a beautiful shop and a restaurant there. And our first COVID case came around the 20th of January. And House of Worth could see what was going on in China with their businesses out there. So we, all, we, we could both see that there was things afoot. So we both agreed that we would sit on our deal and not do anything with it until such times as, as we felt that we were through a period, a respectable period, and, and therefore 
I didn't officially resign until September, August, September this year, and, and that's when the news became public and, and the right and proper. So, but you know, to answer your question, actually, my move is less about you know anything to do with timing. It's all to do with the fact that after nine Christmases, I've been the CEO here nine nine Christmases. I'm 48. I feel as though there's an, a whole other career or two in me, and uh, I feel that. I've spent a lot of time in, in retail. I've spent a lot of time now in hospitality. And I think that the skills I've got will suit the art world really, really well. And they don't want to be known as a multi-brand retailer, do they? They certainly don't want to be known <laughs> as, as a multi-brand retailer. But there are absolutely, you know, you're quite right. I mean, discerning collectors of the world very often have an interest beyond the pure art. And I think the, the role of looking after people in the wider sense, the role of hospitality, the role of culture in the wider sense, the role of, 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 uh, of communication and of storytelling are, are, are traits that, of course, run through luxury retail brands and businesses. And I think they, they are very true also in the art world. Rita, when do you think it is the best time for the, for the boss to move on, to, for the leader to find a new challenge? Uh, I think when they feel, A, that they've done everything that they can do, obviously. Uh, but also, I think that you need to look inside yourself. You need to look inside yourself about, do I still get a sense of cause and purpose when I wake up in the morning? And if you don't feel that, I mean, I remember at one stage in one of the companies I was in, when I knew I had to stop doing it was when I was trying to recruit people and I listened to myself try to persuade, you know, to persuade them to come and to make sure that they wanted to join. And when I was listening to myself, I was thinking, do you know, I sound really inauthentic here. I don't mean it anymore. And I've got to stop doing this. So I think that that's a very good time to move on. I think the other time, by the way, to move on in your life and working career is if you stop being nosy, I know that sounds a bit strange, but I mean, I get a lot of energy out of learning new things and being curious. And I'll just use the word nosy here. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I went into advertising and sort of strategy consulting in the first place, because I'm so nosy about people and how things work. And I think if you stop feeling that sense of I can find out new things and uh, learn new things, then that's another signal that it's probably you need to go and stretch yourself in some other different ways. And you know, I actually buy coaching every few years. I mean, all the way through being CEO and chairman over you know, that, uh, that very long period of time, every couple of years, I've got someone to help me make sure that I'm doing the stuff that I can add most value to and that I enjoy. And, uh, you know, that's what happened in uh, 2016, 2017. I decided that actually I wanted to do some different things, including writing a book about new types of leadership. And I managed to clear some space in you know, my portfolio and uh, working hours to do that. And I think it's really important. We've got to keep on asking ourselves, you know, are we making the most of what we can do? And are we making the most of our hours and day? And I know it sounds very corny to talk about, you know, your own personal purpose and cause, but nevertheless, you know, we are all human beings and we do benefit from having some sense of what am I here for and what can I make a real difference to? And so coaching is something you used. I was going to ask you next to Rita on mentorship and pe people that have helped you along the way. Are there particular people or is it a case of employing a coach to come in and, and review your career from time to time? Well, I, I think uh, two things. Number one is I did have a mentor, although 
I wouldn't have formally called her that. She happened to be my department head when I was at Saatchi and she was strategy director and I was her deputy and I learnt masses from her whether she realised it or not. And actually, interestingly, other people have said this to me over time, which is that they've looked at me as their mentor and I've felt a very close bond and relationship with them, but I'm not sure I would formally describe it as that. I mean, I think, frankly, to be a good leader, almost by definition you've got to be a good mentor because you need to look around and see how you can help people be even better versions of who they are, what they do, what they know and what they can achieve. And I think you need to get a kick and you need to get real reward and recognise that in yourself as opposed to some leaders who seem to worry more about whether or not the people around them might end up being better than they are, which I think is a nihilistic and uh, reductive approach to life. So I mentor a lot of people whether or not you know I've got a formal arrangement with them or not and I really find it incredibly rewarding when you see them become brilliant. And Ewan, what advice do you offer to people coming up in your organisation or even people, even young people that you know from outside Fortnum's? Yeah, no, I, I speak to a lot of people, obviously, within our organisation, but I've done some formal and informal mentoring with a lot of young business entrepreneurs. And I guess my one piece of advice I always remember being given by Tom Viner was never assume. And it resonates with people very, very well, because, you know, even if the culture of the world is more collegiate and is more trusting and is more kind and is more but the, the 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 power of never assuming that the job's been done or the details been done or the thoughtfulness behind the policies being truly considered i think is a is a great piece of advice that has stood me well and i think still resonates really well today now, do you know, it's funny you should say that, and, Jay, and James, I'm just going to test you because you said that you'd, you'd read my book up to um, a pretty late stage, but actually <laughs> on page 70 of the book, you might well have seen that I say three times, here's what I learned, and that never assume, and never assume, and never assume. So oh, there we like are, This is like a magic Ewan. trick or something. It this is, is just... We, we didn't even script that, did we? We didn't. But there we we are. didn't. Never, I totally agree with you, you, and I'm just not assuming that the technology is going to work, that people would have read what you've sent them, anything like that, which is not to say you don't trust people, but actually no. you just need to make Absolutely. sure that you are explaining and keeping things focused and having a sense of confidence that things are as you would want them to be. I think on that moment of agreement, we should uh, we should draw a close. So uh, before everyone falls out again, so Rita Clifton, you inventors, thanks so much for the conversation. Really interesting. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to lockedinternationalcom gb insight. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes. If you're interested in business, check out conversations with Kevin Ellis from PwC, Dame Alison Nimmo, the outgoing CEO of The Crown Estate, and O2's Mark Evans. That's wherever you get your podcasts, or please take a look at leadingpod.com. More new episodes coming soon.